to Lessons from the Trenches. My name is Brad Cook, and I'm your host. I'm on a mission to talk with as many people as I can. I believe there are powerful and meaningful lessons from those in the trenches. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we talk with people from all types of businesses and in every role. So if you're ready, let's get into the trenches. Today, I'm super pumped to have Jeff Florio from Old Oak Advisors. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here and a huge fan of the show. I've listened to several of the uh, several of your podcasts, and, and so it's an honor to be here. So well, thank you. I appreciate that, and and clearly you are a gem of a man to say that. I got you. I'm curious. I, I've gotten to know you over the last almost six, seven months. We've we've had a few one-on-ones. I'm just curious to understand a little bit more about Jeff. I you're a Nolans guy. I am. Right? I am. I'm originally from the New Orleans area. I was born and raised there. Went to all the way through high school down in that area. Still have family there. We still go down for Mardi Gras. We just got it. Just got back uh, not that long ago. It's definitely a, a very much part of our lives and family being there is it makes it convenient for us to go back. So we we love that aspect of things. But I actually attended the University of Alabama, and so since that time, I've, I've made tours of other states. But as I tell people, I've, I've lived more than half my life now in uh, in Alabama, and so Vestavia Hills is home, and Alabama's home for us, and and we love it. Would it it goes without saying that if Alabama plays LSU, we know who you're rooting for? Absolutely, real tight. As a as a youngster. Did you play Monopoly and just kill everyone? Is that sort of the genesis of your finance passion? Sure. Um, I definitely enjoyed Monopoly, but you know, Monopoly is all about real estate. And and so there was this game and I believe the name of it was Stock Market. And we never had that game, but a friend down the street had that game. And I, I wanna say it was about 10 years, it came out about 10 years prior uh, to my, you know, my birth, I was, a, I was a decade late on that game, but it never really took off for whatever reason, but he had this game and we would play it. And I always enjoyed playing it. And so whenever he would say, you know, what do you want to do? Like, Let's play this game. Cause I never had it, mm. but it was one of those things that I, I definitely enjoyed it much more, much more than he did. What, what about it? Like, what, what did you like about it? Was I'm not familiar with the game. So were there yeah. trades? Was there volatility? It was it was the it was a monopoly ish type game and as I recall it's been a long time you're tested you're tested here but um, as I recall as you would buy different stocks much like you would monopoly buy a property um, and then it had a dividend or something along those lines okay. pay out to you and so the idea was to sort of get the high dividend or the high returning stocks on the board and. Uh, I can't remember the actual end goal, much like Monopoly, it would go on. And um, I, I don't know that it ever truly ended, you know, with it, in a playing session. So. Yeah, until you caught somebody stealing. Like in, in my house, it was always my brother's stuff. Where did he get that extra 500 from? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, no, we definitely didn't do that part. But uh, it was, you know, Monopoly in our house was a, was a fun game to play. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, but I don't know, that, that's kind of going way, way back. That was just sort of, I guess, planting a seed of sorts. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I can say, hey, I had an interest in that. But I would definitely say, like with all good stories, it starts with a girl. 
And so, uh, so actually the girl that I dated in high school, her dad was a financial planner and he had his own practice. He was an entrepreneur, uh, had his own firm. And I got the opportunity to intern with them some summers during high school. And so I, that's where I really got a taste for the stock market, managing people's money, or at least the idea of doing this and handling a lot of office type, you know, things with him and helping out on that level. Um, and it really, I think, helped direct my path and my course of studies. Uh, when I finally did go to college, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. Math was a strong suit, so I started off uh, looking at engineering and, and things of that nature. And I actually spoke with several deans of, of schools as I toured. And it was a great experience because I realized that was not something I wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> and so, I recalled a few internships uh, at the financial planning office and thought, maybe let's go more of a business route mm-hmm. and we could at some point specialize more towards investments or even accounting, people had mentioned, and things of that nature. But um, accounting never stuck with me. At the so is this your father-in-law we're talking about? It is not. It is not. So <laughs> that was a high school girlfriend and uh, great, great family and a lot of respect for them, but no. Um, it's, I actually met my wife when I left college. She and I had both attended uh, the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, but we did not meet. We were both in the finance school, uh, but we did not meet until um, uh, we were working out in, in Birmingham area. At that time. Mm, yeah. Uh, so with your lovely wife, you have how many daughters? I have two daughters and um, one is an older uh, daughter and she is a petroleum engineer uh, actually down in South Louisiana. <clears throat> and then I have a younger daughter with my wife, uh, and she is a dancer. Uh, so a classically trained ballerina, uh, dancer. And so, uh, that's what she wants to do for her, uh, for her career. Does so, that mean she's going to be heading to New York? Is it that kind of aspiration? It is. Yeah. So, you know, New York, Chicago, um, any wow. of those types of, um, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure London, any any of those ballet companies, um, she would definitely enjoy being a part of. And we're a little bit early. She's in eighth grade. We're slightly early on some of those things, but she's right at the cusp of, you know, getting her name out there to be recognized. And, mm-hmm. um, so needless to say, I'll never get to retire um, if I have, have a daughter as a dancer. So. No. No, I have to imagine that unless they're treated like supermodels and getting that kind of money, you might be sure. able to retire. I might. I might. I tease her. It, it's all good. Uh, she's she's very good at it. I'm proud of both of my daughters. Uh, they are both living their best lives right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm immensely happy uh, for both of them. So yeah, that's uh, wonderful. I mean, as a parent, as a parent, that is uh, one of the great joys that. There is this point of, as a parent, where you start to see them come into their own, their own personality, their own likes, their own dislikes. And it is, it's hard to describe it. It's, it's just a, such a wonderful feeling as is the older they get and the stakes get higher and the, and the things they're dealing with change. It's, it's so nice to see them succeed despite their parents, you know, we, we, <laughs> we try right. not to screw them up, but without a doubt, I'm a big believer in free will. And, and so, um, we certainly try to give the girls models 
ways to to live your life, make those good choices. Um, but without a doubt, they are they are fully responsible for for their decisions, and I couldn't be prouder. I mean, I say that as a proud uh, proud dad. Mm, yeah. Um. So let's fast forward. You graduate and you start working. And is it at that first job that you meet your wife? It actually is. Um, it was a few years later. So uh, that first job was almost, I guess, just shy of five years. And so approximately six weeks or so before I left uh, that job, I had actually already accepted another position um, out of town in Atlanta. <clears throat> and we had met, but we stayed in, in contact with each other um, as I was in Atlanta. And then I moved back down to the New Orleans area to work at a financial planning firm down there. And then when we decided to get married, that's when I left uh, New Orleans again and moved back to the Birmingham area. And we settled on uh, Vestavia Hills. Old Oak Advisors, is there a story behind that name? If there is, it's it's not a very elegant or, or uh, fascinating story of sorts. I started the business uh, at home um, at the time. So it was the, my first office was in a home office. And so uh, we lived at the time on Old Oak Lane. And so it became Old Oak Advisors. It could have been Florio Financial. It could have been, you know, any number of these, any number of these right. things. But I felt like Old Oak Advisors was more indicative of, of the image that I wanted to portray as, as a business. And also, I grew up in a, uh, a neighborhood that was actually named for an oak. Uh, it was actually called Beautiful Oak. It was called Beauchamp. So it's it's French for for beautiful beautiful oak. So there was that connection mm. uh, with the oak trees and, and things of that nature. And and I just I kind of like wood to to a degree. And kind of do a little bit of woodworking here and there and fiddle with with stuff. Yeah. I, it, when when I hear old oak, it it makes me think of longevity it makes me think of strength and those are the things that i think you want to portray to your clients and prospective clients right without a doubt um it is definitely about the long term um you're definitely not going to harvest any wood uh out of a young uh, oak tree mm. I'm, at least the species that i know or that i think <laughs> of. and it, it's it's definitely a long game um when it comes to growing an oak tree and so it's a long game uh, when it comes to managing your investments and uh, mm -hmm. time is certainly your friend if you have it. So fiduciary, mm -hmm. right? That is what you are. And maybe you can give just like a quick 15 seconds on what that is. And, and then I'd like to dig into why was it that path that you took? Because there's, there's two distinct paths as I understand it. Sure. Maybe more. Sure. Yeah, there are. Um, and that's a great question. It's a question we get asked quite a bit. And so being a fiduciary means that we put our client's interests above our own uh, in all matters. And no matter what it is, any time of day, we are, we are fiduciary for our clients all day, every day. And as a result of that, um, we don't sell any products. I made the decision long ago when I started the firm that that was the side of the fence I was gonna stand on was that we would never sell products to our clients. And in the industry of charging a commission for something, no matter what it is, you can't have the best interests of your client in mind 
if you're receiving a commission um, off of that product. Definitely in the financial industry, when commissions are, are all around us, and they vary quite a bit uh, among different products or whatever is hot at that time or whatever is trying to make a push into the, into the market, um, it puts the incentive on pushing that product rather than maybe what's doing what's best for the client. There was, there's actually a quote um, in, in this book, Great Mental Models, and it's, it goes, we tend to undervalue the elementary ideas and overvalue the compliment. And so to me, being a fiduciary, charging a fee only to our clients, that's the only way that we accept uh, or the only way we get compensated. We don't get paid any other way. To me, it was really just a simple, straightforward manner. And quite honestly, if if I were having my money managed by someone, it was the way that I would want to, to compensate that advisor. Mm. Um, without a doubt, obviously, I think it's the best way to run the business, to run a financial business, uh, advisory business, that is. And if there's a better idea, I'm certainly open to it. If something else comes along um, that puts the client's interest even higher, uh, than ours, I'm certainly open to it. Um, so. Jeff, is there a legal, like, are you licensed and regulated differently than a Charles Schwab rep? Without a doubt, without a doubt. We are held to a, what's called a, the fiduciary standard. And that means that we have to do what's best for our clients um, all the time, every time. Um, anyone else who sells a product or the typical one that we think of as like a stockbroker or something along those lines, they are held to what's called the suitability standard. And so it, the amount that, um, that is charged to a client, uh, is not looked at as much as is the investment suitable for them. So we can overlook the aspect that, um, that product maybe paid them 5% to be invested there and it paid them that commission. Uh, whereas we don't get paid from those products at all. There's definitely, and we are regulated and we actually sign a contract with the clients that says we are your fiduciary. We will do what is best for you uh, all the time. And regardless of how it impacts Jeff and regardless of how it impacts uh, the firm, uh, your interests come before ours each and every time. I think a long time ago, the only other profession that I can think of would be like a doctor, right? A doctor has this agreement uh, to treat you for what is best for you, right? Yeah, if, you've, right. if you've got mumps, he's not going to treat you for a flu. But yeah. today, I think the answer is different because of big pharma. I, I don't know about your experience, but you go into a doctor and you got a cough and, well, here it is. Take this, you know, rhinoglive, federal, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it becomes this product thing that they're pushing, which is the distinction I think that you're making. Now, just to clear something up, when you say you don't sell products, that means that you're not selling um, by ABC or DEF, but you are able to purchase things that you sit down with your client and put together a plan and say, you know, your plan should look like this. Yeah, we are we are completely independent firm. And what that means is that we can go anywhere and do anything for our clients um, that's best for them within obviously the financial financial world. We are not restricted in any way from um, purchasing whatever it is that, you know, may interest them or whatever those things are that help them achieve their goals. Mm. We take a risk approach to managing assets. So 
Um, each client's risk aspect, risk tolerance is different. And so we want to manage assets to their risk tolerance. A lot of people, you know, don't necessarily know what it is specifically that they want to invest in or go after. And that's perfectly fine. That's our job. That's our, that's what we're here for, but we don't expect them to do that, but they certainly like to know how risky they want to be with, with their money. And, and so we manage it to their risk tolerances, not our risk tolerances. And as a result, we can go anywhere in the world to achieve those goals for them. The magic question is how do you help them determine what their risk tolerance is? It's not true. I mean, is it just the old one to 10? Where do you feel comfortable or do you have a deeper yeah. way to get to that? Yeah, we, it's, it's certainly, um, it is emotionally driven a, a lot of times. And so we actually have a test. Uh, that they go through with our, we go through with our new clients and we go through with uh, existing clients over a period of time, you know, as your life changes, if you have a child, your risk preferences may change. And so we'll retake the test. It gives us a great idea for the emotional aspect of investing, as well as, you know, the practical or the ability um, to invest or, or take risks okay. um, on their, on their level. And so everyone is different. Just like a fingerprint, no no two risk tolerances are the same, and and we reassess that um, internally as well, and uh, and how can we better manage that in the future? Um, you know, obviously you want to educate them. Uh, we don't want to sell it a low or anything like this, but when the water's steady and we're in calmer seas, that would be the time that we would say, okay, let's reflect back, look at what you experienced. What can we do to, to make you feel more comfortable? How do you feel about this? And present mm -hmm. them an idea. And so, um, you know, and there's a few others that say, you know, there's market volatility, let's, let's put some money to work. So we manage that on, on both ends of the spectrum. So you mentioned rough seas beginning of 2022 is, I don't know if rough seas does it uh, justice, but that brings me to the question in your line of work, you have to deal with good news, bad news, and maybe from decision-making by your client, by you, by the, the things that you can't control from the market. What do you think so far, what's been the hardest thing you've had to do? And maybe you can just answer that question because there's a follow-up based on how you answer it. Okay. Of course, there's always a follow-up. Well, in general, I would say, and I don't know if this is necessarily market derived. So if, if that's the answer you're looking for, we can come back to it. But without a doubt, the hardest thing I would say that I've ever done uh, is to start my business with, without a doubt. That was the, I would say the hardest thing. You know, there's never a good time uh, to start, or you, at least that's what you always tell yourself. Um, and so that's, that's really difficult. Um, from definitely the investment standpoint, somebody selling out of the, at the low, and then they choose to get in, um, uh, at the high when, when everything's already recovered and obviously going against our advice, uh, at the end of the day, it's our client's money and they can do, uh, what they want and they can choose to take our advice and they can choose not to. And, and so anytime that that happens, uh, that's very difficult to see, mm. uh, because, um, at different intervals. Uh, we feel as though market turbulences are temporary with, with a certain degree of certainty that 
they'll last for a short, on a relative scale, shorter period of time. We don't always feel that way. Sometimes we feel that they'll be longer, uh, you know, longer down periods. But on those, definitely on those moments when they're shorter, uh, we hate to see people, you know, sell when the market has overcorrected right. the downside. Yeah. So, <clears throat> was just before the housing crisis, was your hair brown or black? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I say my hair was dark uh, before I had children, before I had two girls. So, uh, so that's, that's really wet up. Uh, it can turn gray as long as it doesn't turn loose. Uh, is what I say. Right. But the my point is, in, in, yeah, the housing crisis just, I would imagine that kept you up. Yeah. It did. And, and that was a dark day. And I was actually, uh, I had not started my firm at that time, but I was on the research side of the business, um, which is where I had been for a, a good majority of, of, of my career, all of my career, actually, up until this point, starting uh, Old Oak Advisors. But um, it was definitely a dark period. It was a difficult time. Um, but there again, if you were a net contributor uh, to your portfolios, the time was to continue. That was definitely the time just to continue to stick with it, keep putting money away. Uh, for those who were withdrawing money, uh, there was a plan in place. Let the plan play out. Um, that was a longer period of time on the, on the down down spectrum um but if we managed things properly those people had money it was not a problem they were getting their their monthly checks or quarterly checks or annual checks or whatever it was there was no concern from that standpoint the risky aspect of their portfolio we obviously wanted to to give it time to come back and stay the course and so if, yeah. jeff if you looked at an asset <clears throat> before the housing crisis and you looked at it now the the gap right it's still positive today mm -hmm. relative to that point before the housing crisis so I, i'm awkwardly trying to ask the question or make the point to to what you said hang in there mm -hmm. because if you did today you'd still be up or something like that mm -hmm. sure yeah Without a doubt, those were the times, and those are the times in a market. You will have periods where the market turns down or turns negative. Without a doubt, that is when a plan needs to be in place. You have to have a strategy. And playing out that strategy will protect you on that downside. And when I mentioned we do the risk profile for clients, that is what we're testing for, um, is definitely on the downside. What are you most comfortable with? If we have a 10% pullback, are you comfortable with that 10% drawdown? What are, are you at a 5% comfortable level? Um, are you at a 15% comfortable level? Where, where does that fall? Where do you fall uh, on that spectrum? And then that tells us or gives us an idea of how much money we would have in the work it uh, at any particular time in order to, to manage your assets in a manner which you're most comfortable you're also most protected. If you're pulling money out, we want to make sure those assets are, you know, are there and they're available for you to pull out that we're not forced into selling at a, uh, at a downtime. We would much rather just when it's down, hold the course. And when it recovers, when that aspect, you know, that part of the portfolio recovers, then we take the time to rebalance back to our original target. 
just a second ago you slid something in there that i want to just go back and point out that i i mean as a as someone that's invested ever since we were married um which is over 30 years now uh you mentioned that you were in the research side so kind of on the on the technical side and i think that makes you a better resource for the average and any level not even just the average investor because you come from understanding when this happens this happens typically the right. market's still this free moving force but but you understand the conditions in which it moves and and i just think there are so many brokers or there's so many um mick brokerages mm -hmm. <laughs> That, that it's easy to get a license to sell. I shouldn't say easy. It's not fair. <laughs> but someone can get a license and understand the the forward facing piece, how to talk about it, how to sell it, how to, you know, identify this, this, and this. But if someone were sitting across the desk from you, you would bring a whole nother level of understanding than your typical person. Sure. I, d I mean, I went to school for this. I have a degree in investment management, so I definitely studied it. Um, but there's a lot of people out there who, who've done that as well. And, and so they're you know, intelligent people, but I'm certainly no economist, but I, I definitely enjoy studying the market as far as what are the numbers, you know, show us, what should we expect? What are our expectations? Obviously what has happened in the past, but we want to make a, a forward looking projection as well as to what our estimates are within reason. Uh, we don't want to get too far ahead of our speeds on, right. um, you know, it's some wild uh, expectation along those lines. But without a doubt, um, we want to look at what has the market done in the past? What can we expect it to do? And if it goes above that, then great. That's, you know, that's the icing on the cake. Um, we definitely want to protect on the downside. We know the market will have adjustments. And so we want to protect on those moments. Yeah, it's it's like my GPA in in college, my first couple of years. It it goes down quick, but it takes a long time to come back up. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I asked you what the hardest thing to do, and mm -hmm. that was a good answer. Anybody starting a business is it is tough, and especially a business where you're selling yourself as much as if not more than you know the business what you're going to be able to do because you've got to get somebody to buy into the fact that absolutely. you'll do it sure absolutely it's i mean it's difficult i mean you go i went from the research side where i was focused on what my task was you know i was i was researching and trying to find out different things about the market and i still do that to a degree right uh, but it's definitely not 100% of my time anymore, um, whereas before it was. And now I deal with, uh, you know, compliance as far as the regulations are concerned. I need to be concerned with that. You've got to pay the rent. You've got to, you know, right. do all of these other, you wear a lot of different hats, you know. There's definitely a learning curve for, for some of it, you know. Uh, but that's also the exciting side. Would, so, you, would you do it differently if you went, were back and you said, you know, this is something I want to do, I want to go out on my own, would you go about it differently? I have always been on the on the fee-only fiduciary side of the business. Um, there's a lot of people who sort of go the, the brokerage route or the sales route, whatever, whatever it may be, and they make a conversion. 
So they, they build up a client base and then they make a conversion. Um, I've never done that. Uh, I definitely think sort of this has been the harder road uh, as far as, um, uh, you know, doing those things. There's not a uh, infrastructure already in place uh, to bring in those assets. I have to create that. Anything that we bring in the door, any clients that we talk to, we have to generate that. So would I go back and change that? No, I don't have a problem not being a convert. Um, I've always been firm in this decision of being a fee-only um, advisor. Mm. So from that standpoint, I wouldn't change those things. Um, that is my foundation. Um, a, a wise man once told me that that was my ethos. And I would definitely agree with that, that this is, this is my ethos. It's, it's definitely an occupation, but it's, it is definitely a vocation for me as well. I would not change those aspects, those tenants of what we built the business on. I don't ever want to see change. And so the best thing that I can do is to, you know, try to educate and help as many possible people as I can, that there is another way. And I'm, I'm definitely don't. I'm not talking down about any aspect of the industry because without a doubt, they serve a purpose. Uh, they're, they are there for a reason, but I also feel the same about my position in my, in my side of the industry. Um, we definitely serve a purpose and educate people that we are here, that there is another way. Um, it, it, it really opens people's eyes a lot of times. What is the percentage if you put all financial folks in a bucket, what percentage would be fiduciaries? There's been several papers written on this magazine articles and such. And there's actually one I saw and he, when you start to put in uh, insurance salespeople along with all of these numbers, because they sometimes tend to call themselves financial advisors as well. And so anybody who calls themselves that he published in his article, um, one out of 10 that are fee only. And so I actually followed up with him and I said, you know, I'm interested to know where you got your numbers and everything. He said, well, quite honestly, he made a, he made a guess because he knew it was so far below the, the one out of 10. Um, and so the last time that I had looked at the, uh, the BLS of Bureau of Labor and Statistics, it's somewhere in that two to 3% range. Um, but there's, there's companies out there who, who have done studies. I knew some mm -hmm. really was one. Uh, that I haven't seen in a while. Uh, so maybe the number uh, has changed a bit, but it's definitely, you know, I would still say south of that 5% number. And I'm talking true fee only. They, they have other advisors who an aspect of their business is fee only, but they still sell um, some other product. Commission you know, products. Commission products. So in translation, I'd say you guys are sort of like the Navy SEALs of the financial <laughs> space yeah well your words not mine but uh yeah let's, I, uh, i'll take it you know, okay it, it is what it is um yeah yeah it, without a doubt it all comes down i don't care what they call us what our main focus is is we put our clients interests above our own and so mm -hmm. that's at the end of the day um and there's no conflict of interest we don't have an incentive that we are not incentivized to offer anything else um you know uh, several years ago, uh, I might be dating myself, but, but Stephen Levitt, an economist, wrote a book called Freakonomics. And in that book, he covered incentives and an incentive base. And in the business world, the, the way that we are incented 
is oftentimes through money. That's that's how we're incented. And it's just human nature that people are going, this was his, his analysis, was that it's human nature that people are going to gravitate towards those things that incent them more. That if they're, if they're paid and compensated at a higher level uh, and in one aspect of the market, one product, whatever it may be, they are going to gravitate towards that. And, and so we've removed that, that nugget or that carrot to go in a way that would potentially not be in the best interest of our clients. So that's the incentive is, is you win if they win. Without a doubt, without a doubt. But we also want to, we do it in a risk controlled manner. So just because Jeff has a higher risk tolerance than his client, it's not my risk tolerance. It is the risk tolerance of my, of my client. You know, um, my 90 year old client is going to have a different risk tolerance than me. And so my job is to manage to her risk tolerance, not to my own. Right. You know, because she has different needs. She has different goals than Jeff does. And so that is the purpose. That is the primary driver. So side note, on a scale of one to 10, where do you fall on risk? Oh, where do I fall on risk? Yeah, Jeff, not Jeff, the businessman, but Jeff. Sure, yeah. Um, it all depends. I, I take an educated approach to risk. So if you want to know in my own portfolio, um, I'm obviously very educated in it. So I'm probably at about a 12, but that's me. That's, that's where I am. You know, jumping out of plane, uh, with a parachute on my bag, you know, haven't done that part yet. I don't, I don't ride motorcycle. You know, I don't, you know, all of these different things I, I haven't, I don't do. So obviously risk tolerance, uh, is different for different things. And, and so I take an educated approach and, and certainly the circle of competence. Um, I think it was Charlie Munger who said it, but is I like to, I know, like to know my circle of competence and I stick around those circles. Right. Know? Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned the hardest thing. What's been the most rewarding thing since you've started your business? Uh, starting the business has been the most rewarding without it. I mean, and so it was, it's the hardest, but it's also been the most rewarding to be able to help clients achieve their goals, but then also to maybe achieve those things that they never thought they could. Can you share a story, like uh, an example of that, having a client and really taking a step back and saying, wow, this is, this has been amazing. Yeah. Had a client, I mean, and I don't want to get into too, too many. Of course. Specific. Yeah. Um, but a client was unsure <clears throat> if he was going to be able to pay uh, for his children's uh, education. And we looked at things and we, we obviously crunched the numbers. And, and then as we worked together over a period of years, um, we were slowly told them, you know, it, it's, it's just like exercise. You can go exercise and then go look in the mirror and you're not going to see any improvement. You're, you know, you go to the next day, you exercise, you go look in the mirror, you're not going to see any improvement. And I think it was Simon Sinek that said this. And, but at some point, if you start doing this and, and have this practice in place, at some point you'll become fit, you know, you'll get in better health. And so the same was true with financially fit. And so over time, we put money aside for his kid and over time and did these things and built it up. And we were able to achieve 
um, some great returns on his behalf. So that we were very, very happy about that. And as a result, he's he's able to pay for, for both of his kids to go to college. And he's probably going to have some left over uh, if they choose to go to, you know, secondary school as far as a graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he could do that and we were able, you know, to allow him to do that. And, um, you know, he, he wanted to have a, a lake house too and, and, and all of these different things. That was that was something that was important to him for the memories that, that he had uh, with his family growing up, and, you know, one of these things. The fact that he's able to do those things and achieve those things, it's so rewarding. Our clients' goals really and truly become our own goals. We want to we wanna help them in every way possible achieve those things because we get so much satisfaction when they do. So I, I think I know how you're going to answer this question, <laughs> but I, wa- I want you to um, control the urge to answer it the way that you want and think of okay. another way to answer this. Gotcha. What drives you to be successful? What drives me to be successful? Um, that's a good question. I'm interested to know what you thought I was going to say. That's, well, whether I, I, it's my family. Um, well, no, 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 no. I, uh, um, I have to pay for dance classes. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well said. We're, we're well, paying for a lot of point shoes right now. So oh my uh, goodness! Uh, yeah, I like it's um, I love. Oh, well, based on how I know you, and, and even someone that's just listened this far will pick up very clearly that you're driven by the need to help others succeed. Right. Right. And so I don't want to say that's the gimme answer because it, it's, it's an indicative of who you are, but I wanted, I, I wanted you to reflect differently and sure. outside of that driven aspect, and maybe it's the family answer, but yeah. um, at the end of the day, what, what gets Jeff out of bed and sure moving? I, you know, I love, I love the, the market. I, I really do. I, I love everything um, about it. Um, I do think it's a it's a great industry, but it's also a difficult industry. There's there's nothing um, simple about it, and it, it's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. Um, some of it, obviously, um, you know, for the good, and some for the bad, in my opinion. But um, without a doubt, it's it's evolving and changing. And so to navigate that and and figure out what's maybe new, um, but we're sort of rooted in the in the old school. Going back to the the old oak uh, aspect of things, we are um, rooted in that old school, tried and true. I want to see it first uh, play out. Um, I want to know the data. That's the research side of me. I want to I want to know the data behind it. But man, when we when we tap into those those philosophies and we do and follow those principles. It, it is so, so fulfilling. It, you want to get up. And so what actually drives me, gets me out of bed is, is probably the, the next client, you know, and the next person that I can help. And so I don't know who that is today. Right. That's, um, it's, that's the magic. It's the, next, it's the next one. And it's, it's not a conquering thing. It is not uh, building things with, without a doubt. It's, it's helping, it's educating a person that possibly they didn't know um, this field of the industry existed and then helping them achieve their goals. And 
And if we can put them on that course to doing those things, that is, that is phenomenal. And because, you know, the, those saving and the budgeting and all of those different things, a lot of, we give our clients the tools to do that, but you know, there's a great deal of our clients who are, have that asset level that I'm not going to tell them how to, you know, how much money they should spend on a dinner. That's not, that's not the rule that we play. Mm -hmm. So our role is very much on the research side and finding those investment opportunities for them uh, to maximize their, their asset side of the, uh, of the balance sheet. Jeff, is there a threshold level that you just mentioned <clears throat> a particular type of client that you might have probably a high net worth. So yeah. if there is a 25 year old, that's just starting out their career and their life, is that someone that you'd be interested in talking with? Sure. Um, that's a great question. So <clears throat> a great club yet, and, and this is going a bit behind the curtain, which we, I don't mind, I don't mind doing with you on this show. And we have a four test, uh, policy within, within the firm and it's, and everybody sort of is on a different. Uh, they don't have to pass all four tennis mm -hmm. or get or get a perfect grade on, on all of it. But we certainly want to see a, a, a good grade, if you will. And so uh, the first test, without a doubt, is the chemistry test. So we want to know that we're going to have or have a good feeling that we're, we have a good rapport with, with the people, uh, with our new clients. Um, I love our clients and I hope the feeling's mutual. It's it, we have to have good chemistry. We have to be able to get along. I want to be able to sit down and have lunch with these with these people and, and talk about anything um, that is concerning to them. So chemistry is first first and foremost. We want to assess their goals, and with that, that's the second test, the goal test. So are their goals achievable? I've actually had a prospect come to me one time and say, "Hey, this is how much money we have. Um, I want to double it in 12 months," and I said we're not the firm for you, you know, good luck on your endeavors to, to buy that because their goals were not consistent with, uh, what our goals are, or as far as achievement, we had to obviously send them on their way. Um, the third piece, which has always been, uh, with the firm is, is the worst test. And so, yeah, obviously we can do more with uh, clients with more assets. We have more available to us. You have a little bit more flexibility mm -hmm. at uh, the investment choices that you make. You have less investment choices uh, with the with the fewer dollars. Um, but we've actually been striving to to push that down uh, internally at the firm as much as much as possible. And so we actually have some new developments uh, that I hope will actually play out. That. The worth test will almost go away of sorts, um, and so we'll see how that goes. If we can, we can hammer out those those deals. But uh, you know, there's a cost, obviously, on my side of sure. business, and and so we have to factor those things in when we start to work with people. Uh, what we bring to the tape, and so sometimes that worth test uh, is meaningful. So, uh, so anyway, so mm -hmm. there is that. And then the fourth piece, the value test, and that is, can we add value? Uh, to these, you know, these prospects, uh, these new clients. So, uh, if we can't add value to their existing situation, um, and, and actually, you know, cover our fee, pay for our fee or pay for our worth, then we don't need to be, you know, doing business together. Uh, you know, if you're doing fine on your own and we do that analysis for you, that initial analysis, we'll tell you, um, 
because we want to add value to our clients and we want we want them to feel that and, and to see that if we can't do that for a new prospect then we'll we'll certainly tell them that you're doing fine on your own you know stay the course of action give us a call if you have questions so right well you don't find many people that would um be willing you know you have somebody sitting across the desk from you it's got their checkbook in their hand they're ready to to, to move funds to to look at someone and say dude you're doing fine you know whatever you're doing it's working um yeah i, I just think that's again speaks to your your ethos and there's surprisingly more people in general, not not necessarily your industry, but in general that I find are doing that. And I, I wonder if there's this kind of um, ethical movement that's going on. I've just, uh, as a sidebar, recently four, I think, four people that I've come into contact with in the last, I don't know, month, month and a half, mm-hmm. have uh, have turned me away for something I was seeking because they felt like they couldn't add value. And it was refreshing. It was surprising. It was, wow. Okay. Well, I feel a little better about myself. I'm doing okay in this. You're in good shape. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm, I'm curious, are there, as you meet new clients or prospective clients, is there a common theme that you see? Are there two or three things that most people that are new, new to fiduciary or just new to your firm have in common? As far as new clients are concerned, um, savers are always going to be savers and spenders are, are, you know, are going to be spenders. Um, And so the challenge is, is is to kind of bring both of those spectrums to the middle of sorts. And so, you know, someone who's got a million dollars plus in their account, um, there's a reason they have that, you know, they, they have saved and they've done that for, you know, period of time. Right. Um, and typically, uh, even though they have that amount now and they, they go to retire, they continue to save, they will just continue to do it. And so the idea is obviously not to just get them to spend their money, but to, to think bigger about their money and so what is it that you want to see achieved um at whatever point in time that is whether it's um you know in the, obviously in the middle of their career at the end of the career whatever and so we start to think philanthropically we start to think generationally uh, and so what are those things that you want to that you want to see achieved and so those people who are on the other side of that who are spenders uh, you know, obviously the, the goal is to get them to save, to save more and get them to understand that uh, there will come a time when, when potentially the income will stop. And if they say, oh, well, we'll never retire, you know, well, you may not retire, but your, you know, your spouse may feel differently or, you know, something. Or your body will feel differently. Your body feels differently. And so that income source will change. So we need to have a nest egg of which to, to pull from. And so... It's, it's understanding that, that greater picture, it's a different, greater picture. Um, but it's always fun working with, with new clients, no matter what. The biggest thing I would say though, is really managing those emotions of the stock market. Um, so it is emotional um, and you, 
oftentimes don't want to make those decisions uh, at an emotional time. Um, anytime that you can map out a course, map out a, a direction in the way that they want to go, and we plan for the worst, we expect the best, mm-hmm. and you move forward. Overall, this is for sort of all investors, myself, my clients. When those emotions get high in the stock market, you almost, you really want to take a step back and take a, a, a broader look at the market and go, you know, where is it, where is it going? Uh, where does it come from? What should we do? Does it fit in line with our, our overall plan, overall perspective or, or direction that we're headed? If it does, then we're okay. We're okay. You know, we can take the downtime. It's okay. And we just continue to move forward. So. Uh, I would say those are the you know, two or three things uh, mm. with new clients, but it's it's always fun. It's always fun. If if there were someone listening that hasn't, you know, they might be thinking, "Oh, I don't, I'm too young, or I don't make enough to think about having uh, an investor advisor," um, and and that may be true. You know, to your point, if, if someone can't, doesn't pass the, the test in your case, sure. um, what are some things, what's some free advice that you can give just a general investor or some, maybe someone that doesn't understand it? Yeah, absolutely. First off, I would say, give us a call. Um, let's have that discussion first before, uh, you decide that, uh, you, you can't work with us because, um, like I said, things are, things are changing. Obviously the industry is always changing. And we're looking to make the most of that for for all of our clients uh, at any level. But really, that free advice is to is to pay yourself first. If you can, if you could put some money away, actually not if can you, but put some money away. As a young investor, your greatest asset. So you don't have maybe a lot of money as a young investor, but your greatest asset that you do have is time. And you have that in spades over someone who's 65 and looking at, you know, retirement, um, because that is an asset that can never be made up. Right. We've, we've talked a bit about, uh, you know, stock market going up and down and has it recovered and this, that, you know, we can always within reason make money back. Right. But you can never make time back. So without a doubt, time is your greatest asset. And so as a young investor, don't think that you're poor. You are incredibly rich and you're rich in time. And so if it's $25, if it's $50, if it's $100 a month, pull it out and put it into an account. And the old Warren Buffett adage, put it in the S&P 500 index and don't look at it. Just put it in. Do it every single month and for as much as you care and put it there and don't look at it. Uh, one of the greatest ways he said this, one of, said, one of the greatest ways to remove volatility from your portfolio is to not open the statements. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's just, it's so true. It's, um, if someone was screaming over, if your neighbor was screaming over your fence, you know, offering you a price for your house every single day, you wouldn't pay any attention to, them. you know, it's, it all comes down to the price you paid and the price that you sell it. Um, those are the only two days that matter. And so as a young investor. You stay on that course. You are rich. You're rich in time. Utilize it and and take advantage of it. There are so many studies uh, that show the compounding effects of the market over time. 
it will it will amaze you as to the amount of money that you can accumulate over a 30 or 40 year period of time and if you have that available to you if you're 25 right now you've got 40 years ahead before you're quote unquote retired can you can you share i mean without you know specific exact numbers but there's a is there an illustration that you can show the value of that time and really make that point to someone that might be listening? Absolutely. Yeah. So a firm out of their research side and they've done it and I've back tested it and I've looked at it and we can apply it to, to really anything, the market, it's, it's all taking market assumptions, but, uh, let's say if Sally, um, starts at 25 and she puts in, uh, the same amount each year for the next, uh, for 10 years, every year for 10 years. And so um, she puts in that amount of money and she stops when she's 35. We, we don't recommend stopping at 35, <laughs> um, and, but she just stops there. And then that money grows um, for the next 30 years until she's 65, but she only contributed for the first 10. And then maybe you've got Bobby who uh, did not invest. He's the same age as Sally, invest the same amount it invested in exactly the same things, maybe the S&P 500 index. And he did not invest in the market for those first 10 years from 25 to 35. But he decided, you know what, I'm 35, I want to start putting money away. And so from 35 to 65, he put in the same amount that Sally did um, for the first 10 years. He does it for 30 years. The numbers will show you time and time again they wind up in the same place uh, at the end of that 65 year period. And so it's not to say that we wanna, you know, we wanna be Bobby, it's, we wanna be both of them. You know, we wanna be Sally and Bobby, but it shows the benefit that Sally had of those extra 10 years in the market of putting money away, even though she stopped, it grew to a substantial amount that, um, you know, there was, there was great benefit in that and it just compounded. And so she was making what that means for those who don't know is she's making money on the earnings that she already achieved in the market. And so, uh, you know, if, if she put $10,000 in the market and she made a 10% return, she got a thousand dollars. Well, the next year, if she gets 10% again, she would have made 10% on the money that she earned in the market, not just the contribution that she put in. Right. She, she would make money on that additional thousand dollars that she, you know, that she earned in the market. And so you do that time and time again for 40 years, um, it adds up and it makes a big, big meaningful number. So, um, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for, uh, joining me today and, um, Hopefully people walk away with a couple of things and my hope is that they, they understand what a fiduciary is a little better today right. and can make a, a, a better informed decision on their investments and the path that they want to go. Mm -hmm. If someone is contemplating that, then we want them to reach out to Old Oak Advisors. That's right. And how would they get in touch with you if that were the case? Sure. Uh, I would say the best way to do it is to go to our website. It's Old Oak Advisors. So that's O-L-D-O-A-K-A-D-B-I-S-O-R-S.com. 
And we have all of our contact information there. Uh, they can reach out to us directly through the website. That's something that they're more comfortable with. You can learn a little bit more about our firm. And then we can start a dialogue and have a, have a conversation and sit down to, to figure out if uh, if their needs match our, mm -hmm. our abilities and, and we can add value to their investment process. So, um, right. yeah. And then the second thing I hope folks walk away from is there are there are investment firms that are fiduciaries True. and hopefully folks that may already work with Jeff or thinking about working with Jeff or someone that may have run into you at a chili cook-off or no, a gumbo cook-off. <laughs> yeah, a gumbo cook-off. Gumbo. That's right. That's right. I, from New Orleans, remember? Yeah. That's right. I, well, I know you're still active in that. I think you that's mentioned right. that a few weeks ago. Anyway, the, the point is that all fiduciaries are not the same. You know, it's a two-way street. Trust is right. a two-way street. And so we want to earn that trust. We are human, but we certainly want to earn that trust in every single way possible. Jeff, appreciate you being on uh, the show and, and getting into the trenches. Talking about money is always challenging for folks in general. So It is, yeah. So hopefully we can make that easier for people. Exactly. We appreciate being here. Love the show. I'm a huge fan. So thanks so much. Big thank you to Jeff for joining me today. It's a great episode. I always enjoy talking about money. If you know of anybody else that you'd like to see interviewed here on the show, please let me know. I'm always looking for interesting and exciting opportunities to talk to others. Until next time, remember to win the day. I'll see you in the trenches.